program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. Thank you very much. Can you all hear me? Everyone hear me okay? If you can't, start waving. Um, and any of you who are on Twitter, there must be at least two of us in the room apart from me, um, if you want to use the hashtag just down the bottom, any of you who aren't on Twitter won't have a clue what I'm talking about and that's fine, just ignore me. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, promises and pitfalls in sex education. So I'm going to talk to us about how the media communicates sex and relationships issues. I'm going to talk about where it gets it right and where it gets it wrong. And I'm going to talk about where we all might become more involved in ensuring media sex coverage is good. Um, and I'm not blessed in the technical department, so bear with me while I'm using this. this. This fills me with utter dread. Talking about sex is fine. Talking about sex with tech, it fills me with fear. So just bear with me if there's a few hiccups along the way. Um, I thought I'd start with a nice opening slide. Don't worry, it won't get much more explicit than this. Um, and to talk about the idea that sex education, whatever that might mean, or sex information in the media can come in a variety of formats and really last across our lifespan. This one up here, I don't know if any of you know it, it's called The True Story of How Babies Were Made. It was written in 1971. There's an animated version on YouTube if you'd like to go and have a look at it. And anything I mention today, I'll blog later with all the links so you can go back and, and see them. Um, as you can imagine, with a three-year-old in my house, this particular one is a popular favourite with us at the moment. And if my little one were here, he could tell you about vaginal deliveries and caesareans. Um, just to embarrass him. Well, he's too little to be embarrassed, I'll just do that. Um, on the other side, this, for some people might know, is a recent campaign from the Family Planning Association um, for the over 50s to remind people who are having relationships that condoms are still important. So sex education or sex information can be something that begins when we're children and lasts throughout our lifespan. But obviously what we would be talking about to a young child, which might be about where babies come from, would be different from what we talk to a preteen or a teen, to a young adult, to an older adult or to a senior. So there's a lot of different ways that the media might talk about sex. And also, we get it from a lot of information. Mo most places that we get sex information from would be our friends and from our family, um, from school. But after those sources, the media becomes our next best favourite choice. And in fact, we tend to turn to the media when we want answers to something that we wouldn't normally feel comfortable asking. So the more taboo topics we'll go to the media and ask about. Now, there's lots and lots of places I'm sure you'd know that you can get sex information. So it might be that you go to magazines, we traditionally think of radio or TV, websites, there's books, self-help markets, um, there's lots and lots of different places that you could go. If you work more internationally, you will also be familiar with messages delivered by SMS for texting or billboards. Um, or as in this case, this is actually a mural from Tanzania where people have very creatively written numerous um, information about how you should behave in sex and relationships. My Swahili isn't brilliant, I don't know if anybody is here, but I can tell you roughly, it says, read, but don't read about or watch sex. Which is very important advice, because if when you're at school you spend your time reading about or watching sex, you end up giving lectures like this some way down the line. So I think this is actually a very mindful thing that we should be listening to. Aside from getting sex information from a lot of sources, it's coming from a lot of people. So it might be coming from politicians, it might be coming from healthcare providers, it might be coming from people speaking from their own experiences, or perhaps from educators or sex experts, as some people like to, to use the title. We 
may touch on that title later on. They're also giving lots of different messages. So we tend to think of sex education mainly for young people, but it might be that we're talking across the lifespan. Some messages are going to be telling us to have sex. Some of us will be saying we've got to have sex, but only if we're married. Sometimes we get told you can have sex, but if, only if you use a condom or that you shouldn't be having sex at all. So there's a lot of different people who will be telling us about sex and a lot of different messages they'll be giving, which can actually become pretty confusing to a lot of people. Now, what I'm going to do for the first bit of this talk is to talk you through some of the ways, not all of the ways, but some of the main ways that the media likes to talk to us about sex and relationships, a lot of which will be familiar to you, but you can do your own experiments after this and actually go away and see if you can spot these messages coming through. Um, and the first main way that the, the media talks to us about sex is to tell us that we are all the same, and I hope my tech business lets, doesn't let me down now. And I hope that we can watch this. or confused, get information or a pamphlet at most pharmacies or a health clinic. If you need help, see a doctor. So who knew that librarians and greengrocers and people who play the violin all could have VD? Um, that's 1969, that commercial. It's an American commercial. Some of you might have seen it. It tends to crop up on, on TV shows from time to time. Um, and it's interesting because what it's saying to us is potentially anyone could get an STI. And we've probably seen those campaign messages re-echoed um, globally more recently, particularly around HIV. And the aim of the we are all the same message is to sort of reduce stigma. It's this sense that any of us could get an STI um, or we all need to think about contraception or that we all might be having sex. So the idea of sameness um, is supposed to reassure, to bring us together, to make us feel less isolated. The tricky thing about the we are all the same message, however well-intentioned it is, is that often we are not the same. And sometimes when you see the media doing this, we are all the same, and they speak to us as adults, what they're really doing is speaking to quite a narrow group of people. They're talking to people who are heterosexual, who are monogamous. They're talking to people who are able-bodied. They're not really including people in their, their discussions who are, say, bi or trans or have a disability. They're not really talking about very young people or very old people. And where they do tend to talk about difference, it's often in a blaming way, which we'll see some more examples of in a minute. And the tricky thing about sort of balancing this idea that potentially, yes, there's a lot of issues that we all need to think about, there's often strategic messaging that you would probably need to deliver differently. So, for example, if you've got someone with a psychosexual problem, the sexual advice you give to a cancer survivor would be quite different from someone whose sexual problems are resulting from relationship difficulties. So it's always worth looking out for that one, that we're all the same. Um, 
because it, it does crop up quite a lot in various subtle forms and there's variations on it like you can't really tell by looking. But if the media isn't trying to tell us that we're all the same and we should all be together, its probably favourite tactic is to frighten the bejesus out of us so that we don't have sex at all. <laughs> now, I'd like the ladies in this audience to particularly stay away from dance halls because all these men have syphilis. <laughs> they might look smiley, but they all, they all have syphilis. Therefore, you should stay away from dance halls. I'm not sure what you're supposed to do anywhere else where these men might reside. Or perhaps you were married to one who came home. I don't know. But there's this, this warning sign. That, that's a, um, a late, I think it's early 50s American one. This one's more recent. This is from, from Kenya. And it's this idea that, you know, you might think this person looks nice, but actually they're going to kill you if you have sex with them. Um, this one with all the men having syphilis is quite unusual because most of these adverts tend to focus on women being the carriers of infection and women being the ones you've got to look out for. But there's this sense that, you know, there is obviously risk if you're having unprotected sex, no doubt about that. But these kind of messages aim to terrify you so much that you presumably won't have sex at all or perhaps will think about using protection or just stay away from dance halls, whatever it might be. Um, now, the reason I, historically we've used this sort of terror tactic is, is twofold. One is that, that nobody, when they started to talk about sex openly, particularly to young people, wanted to be accused of encouraging sexual behaviour. So if we made it seem quite bad, nobody could ever say that we were sort of suggesting sex might be something you wanted to try. So there was this sense of kind of making it out to be a bad thing. But more than that was this idea that if particularly when you think about um, areas where there are epidemics or perhaps when antibiotics weren't so available. You know, if you weren't able to necessarily get people to use condoms or condoms weren't available for safer sex, you had to think of something to stop people having sex to put themselves at risk, and this was seen as a way of doing it. Unfortunately, however, the scare message doesn't tend to work that well. Um, it's memorable. Most of us will probably remember the iceberg and the tombstone HIV adverts but they don't necessarily make people act in a different way. They, they frighten them, but they're not telling you how to put into action anything that might look after yourself, aside from don't do something, don't sleep with somebody or don't stay, um, they'll stay away from a dance hall. And a, a good example of this comes up quite often with young people. The first time he met you, he said he loved your smile. After a few more dates, he said it was meant to be. You were his one and only. When you were hesitant to have sex with him, he assured you of his love. After all, how could something so beautiful be wrong, right? At first, you ignored any warning signs that you might be pregnant. After a while, there was just no denying it. You became one of 750,000 teens in the United States to become pregnant. Chances are you dropped out of high school. Only one-third of teen mothers receive their high school diploma. And what about his love and being his one and only? That was a short-lived dream. 60% of male teens leave their pregnant partners. Protect yourself and your future. It's the only one you have.
So if your pregnancy wasn't depressing enough, you could have that message. Now the thing about those kind of messages is they're very dramatic. You know, they have an impact. But what they're not talking about is people who maybe come in and have a child when they're younger and go into education when they're older. They make young women into victims and boys into predators. They don't tell you what you need to do to sort out your life. So they tell you what you mustn't do. And they tell you what happens if you get, have sex, you'll get pregnant. And if you get pregnant, you won't finish school and he'll leave you. And your life will be over as you know it. It'll be terrible. But they don't give you any resources to put into action what you might do to prevent that situation from happening. The other thing that a lot of these things do, and, and the teen mum phenomena, I think, is, is massive in the media at the moment. I mean, MTV has several series on, on 16 and Pregnant, is the sense of blame that runs throughout it. There is no celebration that this is all a girl who's got herself into trouble, and look at what will happen to you if you follow that, that way of behaving. Um, which, if you are a teen mum or a young woman who's pregnant, doesn't empower you in any way, shape or form. It doesn't actually hear your story. Now, fortunately, I think there's been quite a lot of young mum and young dad activism and encouragement of creating their own media and blogging and writing about this, which has taken on this kind of problematic messaging. But it's also very distorted. So, for example, if you look at a lot of the 16 and Pregnant series, they focus on families with a very young baby in the house and they say, you know, how tired everybody is and they're angry with their partners and they're crying and they're miserable and it's terrible. You know, if you come to my house with some cameras in about four months' time, I can promise you, you will see exactly the self-same thing played out. So the interesting thing here is that they project a lot of problems associated with teen parents that actually would probably be likely for all parents, but they don't necessarily ex make those um, transparent. Now, that's not to say that there aren't issues facing young people, and we need to be mindful of those, but this kind of terror tactic or scare tactic or just say no approach hasn't been found to be particularly successful, and yet is run out time and time and time again still. That's a very recent media campaign. So it's, it's run a lot of the time. Now, another way that the media talks to us, and this for you as adults um, will probably be more familiar, is this idea of, of aspirational sex, of commercial sex, of great sex. Um, where the media is talking here, it's, it's part education and part entertainment. This is where you have unlimited orgasms and great orgasms and super orgasms. You can't just have one orgasm, you have to have loads. And they have to be mind-blowing. You always have to prefix it with mind-blowing. Um, and you are constantly on the look, if you look at all these kind of covers, and I just picked them at random, of, of making sex new and exciting and better. It's a constant quest for sex to be reinvented and to mainly to allied with products and packaging and performance and positions. Um, you hear here a lot about the fact that you, know, you, you can't just have sex with a partner. You have to have designer bedwear and a nice bedroom and you have to have special shoes, high heel shoes. Not in a kinky way, that would be great, but um, that you just have to have your Jimmy Choo's and your special designer underwear and an expensive sex toy. Th this is the idea that you are constantly improving, where sex is about quantity rather than quality. It's about aspiration. It's where, I mean, here's a word you look out for, where you achieve an orgasm. You don't experience one in media land. You always achieve one. And for women in particular, they're always hard work, apparently. Um, if you look at, say, the pages of Men's Health or other magazines, they'll take at least 20 minutes 
for a woman to have an orgasm. It's quite tedious and you have to kind of fiddle away with various techniques to make her have one. You never are responsible for your own orgasms in this, it's your partner. And sex is defined as penis and vagina. There's not really much variation around that. Um, which you'd think would only be confined to adults and that as adults we would be able to look at this and think how ridiculous we can see through that. But we don't. This is endlessly repeated and repeated and repeated. Magazines copy articles from each other. Magazine articles are used to inform TV. TV informs magazine articles. Um, when Sex in the City was on, every week I'd be rung by a journalist who'd say, I'm investigating a new trend. And the new trend would be whatever had been on Sex in the City <laughs> the night before. Usually linked to Samantha, but not always. Um, and, and it became an entire industry of, of sort of content for media. In a, in a fairly kind of uncritical way. This messaging also um, links or, or trickles down for young people. So this sense of you've got to achieve sex, you've got to be good at it, that you perform it, that you are not communicating. There's not a focus here on talking to somebody or negotiating or experiencing pleasure or not having sex, delaying sex, maybe waiting none of that is talked about. To be a functioning adult from 18 upwards or 16 upwards, you should be having great sex at least three times a week. Now, I'd just like to say that's rubbish, in case anyone watching this thinks that I'm going to endorse that. It's not true. But that's the message that we're kind of constantly being left with, and that sex is, is something that somebody else has to tell you to improve. So this is very much the domain of the expert. And the expert can take many forms from people who work in sex stores, selling products, through to medics, through to scientists. Um, and I'll tell you a bit about how the expertise process works in a bit because it's quite interesting how the, the media makes it work. So the other way that the media can get us to think about or talk about sex is the use of humour. And this is quite powerful, but I think works well. I just love that. I can't get enough of it. You'll be singing that and VD is for everybody all the way home, I think. Now, I think what's interesting, it's actually worth going back and watching that because they're trying to do lots of very clever things in, in one short advert. But the idea of humour is this sense that, you know, rather than scaring us, it gets us all laughing, it gets us all thinking about it, and it's supposed to be memorable. In that also, it's having sort of subliminal messages, I guess, that it's okay for a guy to carry condoms. And condoms are massive. They're so big, they fit on an umbrella. So there's no excuse to say that it won't fit. Um, 
The trouble with humour in advertising or, or in any sex messaging that you might see is it can, it can backfire. Our tastes in humour vary culturally. There's lots of different ways that we interpret humour. And quite often you find that people's idea or understanding of humour may be one person's joke and another person's offence. So it's very, very tricky to get it right. And a good example of that at the moment, I don't know how many of you have seen that Mary Stopes have got an advert out where they're kind of doing a skins type humour comedy video um, with these guys doing like a, a sort of rap style song thing. That makes me sound really old, doesn't it? Those young people in their rap style song things. Um, and one of the lines in it is, is one up the bum and you won't be a mum. Which is kind of funny, but also could be interpreted as them saying, well, that's a good method of contraception. And sure enough, lots of people have interpreted that as what they're saying. So the tricky thing about balancing humour when you're talking about sex is that, that you could be misconstrued, that you might be, particularly if you're using irony, that people actually think you're actually endorsing the thing that you're really suggesting that they don't do. Um, and I think particularly humour becomes the area where if you're trying to run campaigns on, on sex, it's where you're most likely to get criticised, particularly it's around sexual health, because if people don't like sexual health campaigning generally and you're trying to make a joke about it, their immediate backlash can be, well, you're not taking this seriously and, you know, young people are at risk or whatever else. So humour is used, but it's, it's more of a risk strategy and not everybody always gets the joke, so it's a tricky one to have. So moving quickly through, here are some other things that the media does, not so much how they talk to us, but ways that we probably struggle with what they're doing. <coughs> now this was England's great sexual health quiz. I don't know if any of you saw this when it came out. This was done um, in the UK by the Department of Health as an awareness activity for parents and young people. It was run just at the end of the Labour administration and the idea was that parents or teenagers could take the quiz and then there would be some results and compared who knew more about sex. Some of the questions that were being asked already came in for criticism because it was things like how many litres of water would fill a condom, which is kind of like a fun pub quiz question, but it doesn't really tell me whether you know anything about sex or sexual health or not. And the idea of making it a competition is often problematic in, in health promotion anyway. But the thing that's really worrying about this, and it's, it's indicative of a lot of campaigning and, and media work, particularly from charities and NGOs and governments, is what happened to this piece of work? How much did it cost? We don't know. Probably quite a lot of money. What was it used for? We don't know, because a new government came in. Where's that data gone? Don't know. So all of that work and that lovely glossy thing disappeared happens time and time and again in that there is no real accountability in a lot of programs that get put down. The idea that you've just done something, as in you've done a media campaign or you've done some form of, of education or intervention, is seen as enough. Um, we don't look at the costing of it and a lot of the time it's run through PR companies as opposed to being informed by practitioners or academics. So it looks great and it's catchy and snazzy but the content is weak and in this case, as with many other campaigns, this is not the only one, this happens globally all the time, that stuff isn't sustained, it just disappears. And it's really only run for publicity, it's not really run to change behaviour or make any difference. So those of you who are interesting, interested in this may want to find out where that actually went to. The other problem with advice giving, and some of you may be familiar with this as well, not just advice giving but sex education or sex information in the media, is it can't decide is it advice, is it education, is it entertainment, is it both? Or is it an utter disaster of PR proportions, as in this case? Danny Dyer, some of you may know, is an actor. Um, 
No? Okay. Well, um, <laughs> that was quite catty of me, and this is broadcast, and Danny Dyer's a hard man, and he might come and beat me up now. But anyway, um, Danny Dyer had an advice column in Zoo magazine, a lads magazine, and last year, he had a letter from somebody saying, I've split up with my girlfriend, and I'm a bit down about it. Uh, what should I do? And Danny's advice, apart from going out and sleeping around and getting really drunk, finished on this triumphant note of cut your ex's face and then no one will want her. Interestingly, Danny doesn't have the job at Zoo magazine anymore. But what was also interesting was that how this completely blew up, it mainly blew up on Twitter and then hit the mainstream um, papers, was that there was a total meltdown within Zoo about whose responsibility this was and, oh, we just don't know how it got in the papers. It was an accident, it was an oversight. Like, we don't have editorial meetings and know exactly what goes into our papers. So there's this ongoing problem of trying to make things humorous. This is an example of humour going wrong, very badly wrong. Um, or irony, and the idea that the media doesn't quite know what it is it's doing, and when it's criticised, it says, it wasn't us, you know, it was somebody else did it wrong, or you just don't get the joke, or it's just not funny. And I think that's an ongoing problem that we see. Now, I mentioned earlier to you about sort of using experts. The way most of, of the media tends to work when it's writing articles about sex is they'll ring around people to get quotes to back up a story. And you would think that the people that they get usually are the best people and the most qualified people. But actually, they're usually, in the case of sex articles, the person who would say what the editor or the producer wants to have reported. So if they ring you and you tell them they're on the track of the wrong tack, they don't say, well, thank you, let me put that right. They'll phone somebody else or say what you want. So there's a guy at the moment working for Radio 5 who is just calling and calling academics saying, can you find me or refer me um, students who you've included in your research who are involved in sex work because I want to interview them. And it doesn't matter how many times an academic says, no, that's not ethical. He'll keep going until he'll find either somebody who'll do that or find somebody through other, some other means. There is a problem in journalism and media that sex is not taken seriously. It's a light topic, it's a joke topic, that people who talk about sex aren't really that qualified, that you don't really need to get somebody who's that qualified, particularly when you're doing the sort of more sex tip style pieces. Anyone will do to give you, give you information. And we saw this working most recently in the Channel 4 thing that, that Steve had asked me to talk about, where they were putting together a programme called The Joy of Teen Sex. Some of you may have seen it. And they wanted people to find them young people to be on the program, but also come on the program as experts. And they rung a number of us, some of whom are in the audience, I noticed today, and asked us if we'd like to go on the program. And they were talking about how young people were going to come in and talk about sex techniques, and they were going to talk about having their boobs jobs done and all sorts of things. And we were saying, well, that doesn't sound like the sort of stuff most teens come in and talk to us about. And it sounds like you're going to be a bit sensationalist. Oh, no, 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 we're not, we're not, we're not. And sure enough, they were, which resulted in about 23 of us writing to the channel and saying, you, you're seriously wrong with your sex programming. You need to sort it out. And they didn't respond to us, and they still haven't responded to us, although they did through a statement in The Guardian two weeks ago saying that they would meet with us and talk with us and sort it out. But one of their producers did reply to us on Twitter while the program was airing. There you go. If young people want to do it, and lots of people watch it, 
you don't have to watch it, shut up. And that's part of the problem I think we face within trying to challenge this area about you know, this sense that viewing figures and creating a buzz and filling content is much, much more important. You know, and the challenge to Channel 4 still is, we offered them an opportunity to make sure everything they do from now on is accurate and entertaining, but they don't seem that bothered. They could prove me wrong, I'd be delighted, but they haven't yet. Now, I've been very harsh on media and journalists, so just before I finish, um, it's time to concentrate on the other area that we have problems around sex in the media, and that's around the role of practitioners. Now, um, this is from Pediatrics. It's a recent guide they wrote on media education, and it's not bad. It's not brilliant. Um, what is interesting and remarkable about it is it's written by public health practitioners who talk a lot about the need to educate young people about the media. They talk a lot about what's got to be sorted out. Um, but they don't talk about us actually directly getting involved. They don't talk about us informing content or changing media. What they do is they fret a lot about the internet. And in fact, the writing that they talk about in the internet here shows that they actually don't understand new media much at all. And they talk about young people having lots of sex because of stuff they've seen on TV. But most strikingly is that they indicate here, and they're not the only group, a lot of academics working in this area do, that they're actually largely out of touch with young people's lives and experiences. It's very top-down, it's very authoritarian, it's very much telling us what we must be thinking and doing. And strikingly in this, in a great long list of all the terrible things that the media does with young people, there's not a lot of mention of good things it might do. So nothing about self-help or awareness. And they completely miss that for a lot of young people, the media they are consuming is not telling them to have lots of sex, contrary to what this pro uh, the document says. The media they're consuming will be things like um, Twilight or High School Musical, which is the opposite of having lots of sex. Um, you hook up with a vampire and you have a long and tedious exchange <laughs> of really wanting a shag and he doesn't because he's undead. Anyway, um, but no mention of that in here. So the trouble we have as practitioners is, is that we are not encouraged to talk to the media. If we do do work on this, it's from the outside looking in, that we might do some evaluations, we might do some research on it. Quite often we replicate all the same problems the media makes by setting up our own websites or our own programs to evaluate and then they don't sustain and disappear and, and fade away. The idea that you might work as a practitioner giving media advice as opposed to just doing talks about it or doing research, and it's still quite unusual. There are people doing it, but it's, it's not particularly encouraged. And so I think that's something I'm very keen on suggesting to people, is that we, we should be moving this forward, that when I'm writing advice columns, it's not a hobby that I do outside of academia. It's not something else I do that's other. It's integral to everything I do here. That's my job as a practitioner, and the academic work applies and refines that. So we really need to have more incentives to do that. And I'll leave you, because it's always nice to end positively, with some opportunities. This is an absolutely fantastic campaign. I don't know if you've seen it from Canada. And they've replaced core family names with the term prostitute. So my mother, brother, sister, auntie, uncle. And here it's, I'm glad my mother made me finish school, or I'm glad my prostitute made me finish school. And it's just inviting us to think differently about the way we might view and victimise sex workers. 
Now, in terms of our opportunities, creating media on sex information for all ages is something that helps people. It gives them more information. It's reassuring. It's this idea that they can feel empowered. And we can do it not for profit. You know, you can do an awful lot of stuff without having to charge for it. And that's something I'm very much committed to in my work. It's also a challenge to old media because now, rather than us having to just rely on journalists or the media to make programmes for us, we can make our own. We blog, we podcast, people are creating their own videos. And I think that although we should still be working together, there are a lot more opportunities for us as a group to ask for better content, but also to create our own. So I hope after today you'll all feel inspired to run off and go and start making your own sex education materials. If it's rude or bordering on the pornographic, I have nothing to do with that. Um, actually, I do. Yeah, go on. Um, but that's it. Thank you for your attention and open to questions. Thank you very much, Petra. Um, as Petra said, we have a couple of minutes for questions. So if anyone has anything burning, um, not like that, that they'd like to ask Petra, please do. Uh, if you have to get off, there are lots of other ways that you can ask Petra questions online. So does anyone have a question for Petra? I, I have one if no one else does. Um, We've talked a lot about the things that are wrong with sex education on TV. If, if I was the commissioner for BBC Three, let's say, and you had 30 seconds to pitch me the perfect sex education TV show fronted by yourself, what would it be like? Well, that's such a hard question. 30 seconds. Um, do you know what I'd do? I'd ask young people first. It's a cop-out answer, but I would. I would. I would. I would. I mean, I think that was the thing that went wrong with the joy of teen sex is they decided as adults, um, and Channel Three does this as well, that they know best and that they will set the agenda, and the agenda will be these topics that are televisual. Um, I mean, I can give you an example with the joy of teen sex. They one of the things they did was they had a woman who felt very underconfident about her breasts, and so after being told by the doctor she was lovely and it was okay, the social worker took her shopping for bras. Now. Most social workers don't do this, as far as I know. Um, but you could have had much more interesting things with her about a dialogue of why does she feel the way she does and talking to her around her anxieties. And that could be equally televisual without the idea of kind of going and having to buy a bra. I mean, I think that the TV makers need to be more confident of this idea that you could use. And, and within research, we have a lot of methods that we know work and are exciting and innovative, but don't have to necessarily go down the commercial or rather stupid route. Does anyone have a question? Yes, the lady here. There's a microphone coming from the side of you. Uh, Lisa Hallgarten from Education for Choice. I'm a sexual health education practitioner. Um, I think one of the things, I, I, I love the presentation, and um, one of the things that I wanted to add really was that it's really important that we don't allow the media to get complacent and to mistake hunger for nutrition. Um, when the, the woman who produced um, the, the Joy of Teen Sex said 2.1 million young people loved it, and in fact some of the people I, young people I've talked to quite liked it as well, it's because they didn't have anything else. And I think if you take a thirsty man to dirty water, he'll drink it. You know, if you give a hungry person Haribo, they'll eat it, but it's not actually giving them any nutrition. And I think we have to be really clear with the media. They shouldn't be so complacent just because somebody's watching something that's entertaining and exciting. It's not actually helping them or educating them. Thanks very much, Petra. Hunger or nutrition? I completely agree. I mean, I think it's, it's a tricky one to balance because 
I think lots of people did say they like, and there were bits that were good about it. I mean, and I think that, that that's the skill within particularly within media is that j journalists know how to attract an audience. It's just the lack of this. We just don't have enough gel together that we can bring the information in that they can then make exciting and, and, and accessible. And then there's that difficulty of, as you say, saying to people, well, yeah, it did talk about sex in a frank way, but it wasn't very good, which underpins a lot of what we call sex positive campaigns, which is that because we're talking about sex, and we're not saying it's bad, therefore it's good, and therefore you're not allowed to criticise it. But I think the sort of sex positivity that we're seeing actually in itself is under-theorised and quite often very weak and needs, needs assessing. Do we have any more questions? Oh, one down this side, there's a microphone coming for you. It's taking a slightly long route. There we go. Uh, hi. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you mentioned is that a lot of campaigns uh, sort of disappear into the ether after they happen. Is there much in in the way of um, sort of? I'm trying to combine what you're saying as kind of you know academics and practitioners have a duty too. Is there much in the way of um, possibly academic interest uh, in doing studies of 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 how that works and and how common is that? I think it's a, it's a brilliant idea, and I think it's something that should be done more. There is a, a South African charity called Love Life who archive all of the campaigns they do and document what they've done and the impact they've had, um, often in terms of viewing figures rather than actual behaviour change. But, yeah, I think that, that part of the difficulty we've got with a lot of these ventures is they're short-term and they're not followed through. But for academics, I think it's an, an amazing point to say you know, we could get along with not just watching what you're developing and monitoring that and feeding back on reflecting on it, but also going off and finding out. Often we hear people say, oh, well, we can't do that because how would you measure impact? Well, there are ways of measuring impact. And I think, you know, if we are making out this as an educational activity, I mean, you could say, well, yeah, we could do it as an educational activity because we all have rights to information. But if we want to go beyond that and change behaviour or do something else for people, we need to have better ways of measuring that. And the, the biggest limit is funding. That, that's our biggest limit. I think people could do it and want to do it, the more people that, that volunteer, and it would be liaising with charities and organisations. To find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk. Mm -hmm.